0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. This week we're going to talk about how to work out, how much of a risk taker you are, the waiting game for UK equities, the latest Woodford update and how to be a furfluencer.
0: Love the vigour with which you said that last word, Dan. So, first, on to UK equities. We've heard that the Prime Minister state once again that he's going to get a deal on Brexit by the deadline of the 31st of October, which is now alarmingly close. Um, So, obviously, the Brexit conclusion has a big impact on what happens in UK markets. So, is it worth betting on the outcome of any deal Dan?
1: Well it's kind of like the the clock has been ticking down for a while I feel like we're into that real final phase I'm sure lots of people are hoping the same thing even to just get Brexit out of the way no matter what direction it takes but I mean Boris Johnson was on the the telly the weekend talking about how Britain can still leave on 31st of October despite there being a law that actually stops uk crashing out of the eu without a deal so essentially investors should be thinking about what could potentially happen in sort of the over the coming weeks um sterling has been pretty weak um the last couple of weeks and, You know, and going back for a further trend it's been weak as well we know uh, over the summer there's been some alarming figures like 1.2 billion pounds has been pulled out of uk equity funds and it's it's still looking like we're not quite sure what's going on, but I think investors could could may want to think now is the time to make a decision. What do you actually think will happen? Um, I've certainly been talking to lots of fund managers, and they've been saying well, you can either, if you're in uh, in UK equities now, if there's um, no deal, we actually come to some sort of uh, amicable agreement about how the exit process will work that sterling could rally and uk equities could also rally and you'd already be in it so you wouldn't miss out on this big surge others are saying well you know it's it's so unknown should you really be taking this risk Well, actually you might be better even if there is a sort of short term rally if the news is quite positive um, you wouldn't have taken that big risk that it's gone the other way so it's it's hard, but I do feel like certainly on um, talking to the fund managers, they are starting to make decisions. So I was talking to a guy the other day, and he was saying that um, there's lots of demand. He thinks from overseas investors who just want to know what the process is going to be, and once they have that clarity, they'll be in in like a hawk and snapping up these UK equities. And of course, you think that might push up prices. But.
0: I think that there's an there's definitely I can see the logic in that in that the UK has become the most unloved region for international fund managers. So there's a kind of survey that Bank of America, Merrill Lynch does that I think we've talked about before. The kind of charts where fund managers are moving their money. And for a long time the UK has been this unloved region where people are just moving money out and they're certainly not moving back in in their droves. And you you can definitely see the logic behind once there's more certainty and we know roughly what the outlook is gonna be for the UK, then that might entice some of those investors back in.
1: Well, I've looked at some of the performance figures from this year. The FTSE 100 is up just over 10%. So this is about 70% of those companies in that index earn overseas. So you could argue this isn't really a a UK index. It's not really representative of domestic companies. Um, For that, you would look to the FTSE 250, where about half of them are about UK sort of focused business. Actually, that's, that's done better than the FTSE 100. That's up 14%. Which would suggest that if you have stuck with the belief that you should have some UK exposure and you shouldn't try and time the market and just stay invested, you would have done all right. I mean fourteen percent in you know, nine, ten months is it's brilliant. Versus the average of six or seven percent a year from equities, it's it's very good. But I guess you are you are taking that sort of risk.
0: So have we got any signs already of some of those maybe foreign investors or foreign companies coming in and, and seeing value in the UK market?
1: Well, I think in, so. The, the big institutional investors overseas ones, are they may be cautious because they've been withdrawing money. But I think there's definitely actual companies um, and also private equity companies who are seeing value in the UK stock market. Because there's been so many takeovers this year. I mean, there really have been quite a lot of deals going on. Um, And if you look at who's been making these bid offers or proposals, a very large chunk are overseas companies. Because when you translate um, ultimately, whether it be like the the dollar or a different foreign currency back into UK sterling, there is a, a, a boost to them that they're actually being able to buy something Cheap, really cheap. Um, so the currency is working in their favour. And that's, and I think this sort of trend for takeovers is will continue until we see Brexit. And of course, if we get a no deal situation, then that could potentially push the market down even further. And then you might see some more, more stuff coming, more deals coming. I
0: guess coming. the converse to that would be, even in a no deal Brexit, the the outlook for the UK might be more certain, and markets like certainty, and so that might have a certain stabilizing effect, but not to be the boring person here but probably you shouldn't be thinking about what's going to happen in the next month you when you're investing you should be thinking about what's happening in the next five to ten years and think five years ahead at what point you think the uk market will be at and invest based on that rather than maybe where you think it will go in the next month or two
1: i think that's definitely right but i guess there's there's also people who think um if i buy today could i even cheaper tomorrow so should i wait or i think there is still interest in the market but people seem to be really obsessed with wanting to know what will happen in the short term and i think you could probably look at it in two ways one is if if there is a no deal it's going to be bad for uk stocks going to be bad for sterling um and I, i probably would say the only potential winners would be the companies on the uk stock market who are earning overseas and maybe some of these property companies who've got logistics like big like warehouses so if there's a load of stockpiling and people concerned about sort of international trade then they might have be a short-term beneficiary but if there's a deal then I would suggest that property companies, banks, house builders um, and retailers could potentially see quite a big rally uh, certainly short-term as people sort of reappraise them and think actually maybe we're not going to have um, this potential recession or anything like that but of course when the dust settles no doubt there'll be something new for people to worry about so um, I say investing is is never easy and you're probably right Laura by saying you should have a longer term focus on this not really trying to be trading in and out markets on what you think might happen but it is the big question that everyone's asking
0: yeah, because everyone's so focused on it because we keep hearing incessantly about it, which obviously our discussion now is adding to. But I think that's what why it's come to preoccupy investors, because it's kind of in their face every day, isn't it? Yeah. So that's all quite timely because all of that ties into how much risk you're actually willing to take. Um, and we had a chat recently with Anna Sofat, a financial advisor at ADD Wealth, talking about kind of how to assess your attitude to risk and, and how to gauge that. So here's that chat that we have with her now.
1: So one of the first things investors should think about when they start out is their attitude to risk. Um, So Anna, as a financial advisor, is it uh, quite hard for someone who comes in and have a conversation with you about their sort of financial planning? Do you tend to find that people are either extremely confident and have a very large appetite for risk when actually they shouldn't do, or people are all very risk-averse when actually they, they, you know, in order to make sort of, uh, a better gain than cash over the long term that they should be taking some risk is it, is it sort of a polar one thing or the other nothing in the middle
2: um i think there are probably things that come to mind when clients first come to us particularly before they sign on to become a client if we talk about risk there is definite tendency um to be cautious that they almost sort of think that we're going to try and persuade them to go into markets and they're not quite sure how they're going to feel about it. So there's often a tendency to sort of go, I'm not terribly, you know, risky um, and to play down the risk, whatever their eventual appetite turns out to be. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily, I mean, sometimes we get again you've got to remember that we're we're financial planners so typically we get clients looking for advice and looking for ongoing relationships so I think that probably has an impact in terms of who comes to us particularly by the time we get to have a first meeting Um, but among those I don't think we get too many that are sort of I'm a big risk taker necessarily um, uh, approach I think Uh, If I'm generalising where I have conversations, I would say probably those who self-invest probably are more risk taker because they're that much more confident in their abilities and they probably uh, feel they understand risk and and so will, I think, often lean towards high risk uh, just on paper at least. Um, and
0: so how do you work, what are the kind of things that you ask clients to work out what their attitude to risk is? Because obviously if you ask someone how much risk are you are willing to take, they'll either overstate or understate yes. or it's quite unlikely they would get it bang on. So what yeah. are the kind of things that you do to tease out how much people mm-hmm. risk people will take?
2: Um, so my, typically, I mean, I'll talk through how um, at DD we approach risk. But usually in the first meeting, if I'm having any conversations around risk, is typically around whether they consider them to be risky as people, sort of what sort of things they do. I don't talk about investment risk uh, at all, really. I might go on to it and say, okay, you know, if, if you are sort of on a risk of one to 10, where one, one is somebody who's very, very cautious, and, you know, they've been in their same job for many years, they've lived where they've lived for many years. Um, to the other end, where you know maybe they're flying about everywhere, they moved all over the world, their jobs quite quite changeable. Um, so as people, I get them to start thinking about whether actually they're quite cautious in life or they're you know quite open to taking risk with what the decisions they make, not the investment ones, but just life's decisions. Then occasionally I might bring um, investment in and to say whether. You know, on an investment scale, are they sort of gamblers, uh, sort of on a one to ten scales to being very cautious, building society investors? Um, So that's usually a conversation to help me sort of start to get a feel for where they might be as people. Um, And then the next step normally is if they sign on as clients, we get them to do a risk questionnaire, psychometric based Um, and that will try and tease out their innate ability to take risk or not. So it's their emotional capacity for risk. Um, So that's the first thing we do. That we use, again, as a sort of starting point. The second part of the equation, so you've got your willingness to take risk, and the next level we look at is your capacity to take risk and that is um and then the third element is how much risk you actually needs to take now sometimes those decisions are driven by cash flow projections and just looking what the parameters are other time more often than not is nuances around the objectives and goals and how how much of a buffer they have or not in terms of what they need to take um, on the downside and the capacity of it um it's quite difficult in many ways, I think, for individuals to look at risk and then associated with investment returns. So we try what we try to do is look at inflation plus return. And so for every every given bit of risk, say if you have got zero to one hundred percent on a risk scale, um, we look and go, okay, if you're fifty percent risk and you you're invested in sort of fifty defensive, fifty risk portfolio, roughly speaking, what can you expect? over and above inflation so we link it to that it becomes more meaningful for clients um, as to whether they're needing inflation plus five percent return or inflation plus three percent return for example
0: and that middle part there that you talked about is kind of around their kind of capacity to take risk it's presumably around how much money they have and how much disposable money they have so are they reliant on that pot of money in the near term or do they have a large amount of money to invest and therefore they can take more risk with it?
2: So the capacity is really linked to um, how much of here and now um, sort of buffer they have in terms of job security, in terms of emergency fund, how long they can tie up the money effectively. So that determines really how much downside risk you can afford. Now if you're in your 20s and you're investing for your pension, you can't access it till your 50s so your capacity for risk is quite high, mm. no matter what, how much you sort of, um, how risky or not you are. Okay, and then you've got your re- sort of need for return. So, for example, if you're in retirement and you more or less got income that you, you, you know, you, your whatever is coming in, pensions is meeting your need, and your main need is for long-term care cost. You might take a view and there, and so have you got enough? For example, equity in your property that you don't need to do much more than inflation one one and a half or do you actually need it the money to grow because there's still a gap to sort of inflation plus two three okay so normally roughly we go sort of cautious is inflation plus one one and a half moderate tends to be inflation plus two ish two to three and then you've got high risk roughly speaking in terms of real returns Mm.
1: and do people look at these figures and think um well it, it I, I have the choice of I. Would you like to make say five percent a year or one percent? Do people tend to, when you put it that sort of that context, they tend to go for the higher figure, or um, are they quite reasonable in terms of understanding? There's no point taking extra risk if you don't need to do it.
2: Yeah. I think very few people are open to taking more risk, without needing it. Some are because they can afford their capacities high, and so they view is well. If I make some money, I can do something with it. I can give it away or whatever else. So there are definitely some who will say, well, you know, I'm not a cautious type of person, so if I can afford it, I might not need it, but actually I'm open to it. Um, But more often than not, if they don't necessarily need to return, they view will be, well, then why should I take it effectively?
0: It's interesting, I think, to think about risk taking in other areas of life and then kind of correlating that to investment risk. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm probably a bit more of a risk taker in everyday life than I am in... In your investment. In, yeah, I think I'm yes. quite conservative with my investment. Yeah.
2: It's quite interesting because you often think if you're a risk taker in life, you'll be a risk taker in investment. But actually, often it's the contrary. Um, because if you think about it, if you are taking quite high risk in your life, so you might move from job to job, for example, you're going to want to have a good buffer over here. So we all need a sort of some solid foundation somewhere. So often those who are quite cautious in life actually doesn't mean they're cautious in investment terms because they've got all this security over here so they feel they can afford to take risk. Whereas those who who haven't got that security in life and they're taking all sorts of risk, they actually want something solid on their investment side You know, that they can fall back on if job doesn't come up or whatever else. So it's not, normally I think in our in financial services, we often think, oh, well, if you're a risk taker, you're prone to risk. It's not how it works emotionally often. So it's, you know, I often find that contra between the two, you're cautious in life. You might still be cautious in investment terms, don't get me wrong, but it's not surprising to find that they're not. So I don't think we should make assumptions just because how you are in life is how you're gonna be in investment terms.
1: So if you drive a Fiat Panda, you're taking big risks in uh, (laughs) small cap, high risk stocks. And if you drive a Lamborghini, you're invested in government bonds. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: possibly, possibly, because (laughs) if you are sort of driving around in Lamborghini, one, you probably got money to burn, but (laughs) that means you need to make sure other things don't burn. You know, if you crash and totally destroy that Lamborghini, you still want your family to be okay. Mm. So, um, not quite as black and white as that, but definitely (laughs) shades of grey in there. Thank
1: you very much. It's really good. All
2: right. Amazing. Thank you.
1: And so the Woodford saga feels like it's been going on for months, and the regulator's now come out with its latest comments on the issue. So, Laura, what have they been saying?
0: So it feels like it's been going on for months because it actually has. So the Woodford Fund first closed in June, start of June, and we're now many months on from that. But the Financial Conduct Authority um, is now looking at a range of different remedies to help prevent another Woodford scenario happening.
1: Do you think that's probably worth summarising to listeners who who may not know what's going on or perhaps um, forgotten the the finer details? So why is Woodford's Fund suspended and, and why does that matter
0: yeah i forget that people aren't necessarily breathing this day in day out like us um yet yeah, so woodford neil woodford ran a large fund multi-billion pound fund Um, investing in UK equities a large proportion of the fund ended up being built up in unlisted or unquoted assets he then saw a lot of redemptions from the fund wasn't able to sell the holdings um, in a timely manner so had to suspend dealing in the fund which means investors that are in it can't get their money out for now it's been closed for a few months now due to reopen at the start of December Um, and I think that sums it up doesn't it
1: yeah I think so, yeah. Great,
0: yeah. that felt like a bit of a test, but good. <laughs> um, so now the regulator, it was lo- it was looking into so-called illiquid assets. So these are assets that can't be traded very quickly. Um, so obviously shares, most kind of things like FTSE 100 shares can be traded very easily. Um, illiquid assets like property, particularly, the FCA was looking into and looking at how that then tallies with funds that allow you to trade in and out daily. Um, it's, it kind of delayed the release of this paper after the Woodford scenario to include some Woodford stuff. So it's a paper that was predominantly focused on property funds but now they've tacked a bit of Woodford stuff onto the end of it which is quite interesting. Um, So one of the things that the FCA found is that lots of investors aren't aware of liquidity risk in their portfolio so they're not looking necessarily at the funds that they're investing in and thinking or how quickly could that they sell the underlying assets in there. Um, So it's suggested that fund managers should do more um, to kind of help educate uh, investors, but also potentially that fund managers shouldn't allow daily dealing on these funds, um, which is potentially quite a big thing because I think we've all become used to being able to sell our funds, buy and sell our funds whenever we want to.
1: When does it? When are these changes that it's proposing now are these the final ones? And, and when? When would the oh, changes? You know happen? how
0: the regulator works. There's a yeah. paper, then there's a thinking huh. period, then there's another paper. So the stuff that it's released on property funds will come in place in a year the stuff that it's talking about with woodford um, is a kind of just dis- open for discussion now they'll do a further paper on it once they've gathered people's thoughts on it so it's kind of at the start of that process which is a little bit frustrating maybe because it's a problem that investors are seeing now rather than one that needs solving in two years time
1: so if a, if a member after the brexit vote you had a couple of property funds that were suddenly suspended from dealing because you had a rush of people trying to take their money out because they thought the property market was going to crash. Yeah. Um, they didn't want to have to rush to try and sell properties at any price. So that's why they suspended dealing. It's given a bit of time to, to do it. What, so what, what's the regulator saying now? Is, you know, is, is it sort of implying that, that we might have another situation where we get even more illiquid funds uh, that are suspended because rather than forcing them to do uh, asset sales quickly just give them much more breathing space. Is that kind of what they're hinting? Yeah,
0: so that's exactly why the regulator was looking into it because of those problems with the property funds after the referendum, which gives you a little insight into how long it's taken because we're what now, three and a half yeah. years since the referendum right. and since those property fund closures. Um the FCA is actually saying that the fund suspensions that we saw then is the right thing and that's what should have happened. Otherwise you get what they term a fire sale of assets where you have to try and flog everything off quickly and at the cheapest price. What they've said is that they want to bring in stricter rules so that if there's uncertainty about the valuation of 20% or more of the assets in a fund, then that fund should suspend dealing. So what we're likely to see is more funds suspending more frequently um, because they might hit that 20% buffer.
1: So I imagine as an investor, this might be quite frustrating Particularly, you know, the, the Woodford situation has, you know, been all over the papers, and people saying this is this is awful. My money is locked up. I just want to access it. Um, now it sounds like, if you're in property, that this is um, a, a something you should think about. So. Um,
0: It's not just property as well. It's things like infrastructure investing. It's anything that's not easy to shift. It could potentially um, go into things like um, funds that invest in AIM-listed companies if they're investing in these companies that aren't very easy to um, buy and sell. So I think it's, yes, you're right that I think investors might find it a bit frustrating. But also I think maybe over time it will just become more of the norm. So there was a lot of... um, press coverage and attention on the property funds at the time and even more coverage of Woodford. But actually, it might be that in five, ten years' time, it's not necessarily normal to see these funds close. but it wouldn't be as shocking to see a fund suspend dealing.
1: So I imagine, you know, how are they going to market this information to people? Potentially, you know, if, you, if you're just looking at a fund, haven't put your money into it, and you're seeing all these things saying, there's a chance that we may have to lock up your money for a while. I mean, that can't be good. For them if they're trying to attract new money.
0: Yeah, but they've got I think one of the big things that the regulator's talking about is that investors have got to be clear what they're getting into and, and that there might not be daily dealing or that there might be these times when they have to suspend trading. And I think it's more about kind of educating investors on what they're actually investing in um, and what their money is being put into and, and how easily it is to sell those assets if they need to.
1: Okay. So in the US markets, we've had um, the latest loss-making company joined the markets um, to much fanfare, which is the fitness brand Peloton. Uh, didn't quite have a very good start, down 11%. Have you, Laura, have you done that? Have you used them? I mean, do you know what they do?
0: So it's like basically glorified spinning bikes, isn't it? Not to diminish their entire company model, but...
1: Yeah, so I think as far as I understand it, I've never used the service. It's, it's if you're... Time poor, and you you know you're you're working hard all day, and you don't have time to go to the gym for a certain class. Yeah, so you can go home and use your Peloton bike and watch a broadcast of a fitness thing class. What do you call them? Yeah, (laughs)
0: clearly a regular gym goer. (laughs) Um, uh,
1: And you and you can sort of go along. But to me, I you know I I would I thought you instantly I could just get. Um, some stepladders and get my laptop and go onto youtube and find a class for free and with my 59 pound bike from argos i could recreate the peloton experience what are
0: the stepladders for well you
1: know because you you'd have the Laptop high enough to uh, eye level. I don't, or or I could get some super glue and super put it on to the end of the the fitness bike, but I didn't think that would be practical.
0: I don't think you're going to sell lots of units of that to be. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not
1: trying to, (laughs) it's not setting up a business. It's for for me to replicate the experience without having to pay thousands of pounds because we've, yeah, because
0: that's the thing. I, I was kind of slightly bought into the idea of, yeah, you can exercise at home at your own convenience, but feel like you're part of an exercise class. Then I looked and it's like a thousand pounds to buy the bike, isn't it? Yeah. I'm out. (laughs)
1: but <laughs> well, you get i mean it, so there was a lot of fanfare about this company joining the stock market because it's you know, it's the latest buzz thing but to me it doesn't sound like a mass market uh product because of the pricing points just too high for everyone um and i don't know maybe the fact is loss making business may not put a lot of people off because there's been plenty of examples of companies that joined the stock market i think i read some facts saying that 80 percent of all New stock market floats in America this year are loss-making. Wow! I mean, that just goes so it shows that investors are happy to own a loss-making company because there's this hopeful, clear path to profit.
0: But I'm not sure in something like this where you're not just buying a bike and that bike works, whether the company's gone bust or not. In this, you're actually buying a bike which tap one of the big appeals of it is that you're tapping into these recorded fitness videos or live fitness videos and if the company not that we're saying the company is going to go bust but if the company did go bust you would lose that part of it and then you're just left with a normal spinning bike that you could probably get down argos for 100 quid yeah
1: exactly I mean, so just, i think that
0: would make me wary
1: yeah i mean i, I can see I, I was having a look at it's the information it issued earlier this year about the business, its growth is really impressive, and, and you, you know you can't sort of discredit it for for that sort of stuff. So it, it is, it is a uh, increasingly popular service, and it talks about its addressable market: sixty-seven million households, of which forty-five million are in America. So it, it's it's got massive room for growth potentially, um, but it just might be that people are sort of saying. It's it's the service is so easily replicable. You know, you can do this yourself. Do you, I don't know? Do you really need to watch a live class? Surely there must be. You could buy a DVD, can't you, of a spinning class?
0: Well, that's going back to the old school, isn't it? Fitness DVDs. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you probably could. I guess there's probably something about being feeling like you're in a live class and it motivating you. And I think they they kind of like shout out your name in it as well, don't they? And acknowledge that you're there, so you feel a bit more part of a group exercise rather than starting and thinking after five minutes, I can't be bothered to do this and quitting.
1: Well, can't you just get a friend to come around and just shout your name every five minutes? <laughs> you can do it, Laura.
0: <laughs> I really think your fitness physio is going to really take off. <laughs> and so finally, in the ridiculous press release of the week that I got, there's a release that coined the phrase furfluencer.
1: I know. I can't believe you made me say that at the start of the podcast as well. Um, <laughs> I guess the big question that every single listener is saying is, What is a furfluencer?
0: It's a dog that's a social media influencer. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. So this is a company, a holiday rental website, that wants to offer money for people to take their dogs to try out holiday homes. But do you want to hear the requirements? Yeah, go on. Must be able to take stylish lifestyle photos. The dogs must be photogenic. And then it says they must have an eye for detail and impeccable taste. I'm unclear whether that's the owner
1: or the dog. I think it's the dog.
0: (laughs) And you have to judge the properties based on dog enjoyment and access to local walks. (laughs) <laughs> but actually, I've recommended this to my parents because they've got a dog who could be a potential furfluencer. I think. Um, and you get 10 mini breaks in 12 months and you get paid £300 a time.
1: I was going to say, what, what's the finance link? But you've just you've just spelled it out. Yeah. So, so basically, great deal. don't bother getting a job um, with a paper round. Just take your family's dog and tour the world <laughs> with a camera. And then you'll be rich. Is that Great. that's conc- the conclusion of the press release? Isn't yeah,
0: it? yeah, I yeah. think so. I think mean, you've definitely taken <laughs> some liberties with their conclusions, but yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got to buy a dog in the first place. They're quite pricey.
1: Uh, surely there must be a service where you can rent a dog.
0: Oh, there is. Borrow my doggy.
1: There you go. Brilliant.
0: Problem solved.
1: i'd just like to say good luck to everyone who's listening and i hope you become very rich (laughs) so thanks very much for joining in uh if you've got any suggestions for future topics or general comments then please do email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk now remember you can actually listen to us on the move using spotify the iphone podcast app or podbean just search for money markets thanks very much we'll see you next week
0: thanks Thank <music> you.